0: are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of the Frankenmuth Historical Association. Some episodes may contain subjects that are uncomfortable for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised.
1: Hello and guten tag, and welcome to Historians in Hosen I'm Garrett. I'm Nathan. And I'm Malcolm. We are three historians from the Frankenmuth Historical
0: Association, located in Frankenmuth, Michigan. The association owns and operates a seven-gallery museum, a historical log house, Fisher Hall, and a collection of over 30,000 artifacts
2: check those out at frankmuthmuseum.org or right on our Facebook page at Frank Muth Historical Museum.
1: This podcast will tell the stories of Michigan's Little Bavaria to the real Bavaria and anything in between. Be sure to tune in every other week and listen to the three of us and our guests as we dive into the wide world of history. Auf Wiedersehen!
2: Hi everyone! Welcome to another episode of Historians and Later This is Nathan. Um, today we decided to talk about Frankenmuth and Christmas and Christmas traditions, especially. So, I mean, anyone that's ever been to Frankenmuth kind of knows um, all about how it's Christmas town. It just turns into Christmas town every December. Um, really, starting in November, I guess you could say. True. Um, Brunner's Christmas Wonderland, the world's largest Christmas store, it's right here in Frankenmuth. Uh, There's a giant Christmas tree in the middle of town, ice rink, hot chocolate, um, Santa's reindeer farm, all kinds of Christmassy stuff to do. But how did this come to be? That's sort of the question um, that we're asking. And we're going to explore some old traditions, Christmas traditions, German traditions, Frankenmuth traditions, and get to the bottom of all this. So um, I just wanted to start with a question for you two. Do you know why Christmas is on December 25th?
1: No, because I remember in Catholic school, I was taught that Jesus was born on December 25th, and then I learned that that might not be true.
2: (laughs) So, you're you're right. So, we don't really know when Jesus was born, right? We don't know the time of year, the date. There's decent guesses, but it's it's really just a guess. Um, So, really... The oldest traditions kind of go back to um, the winter solstice. So middle of winter, everyone kind of, which is like December 21st, right? Um, middle of winter, everyone gets a, gathers around to celebrate and um, celebrate the end of not really the end of winter, but the end of darkness in a sense. So the winter solstice, as you all know, is uh, like the midpoint. That's the darkest day of the year. After that, it starts getting lighter for longer during the year. So it's a cause for celebration for a lot of people.
0: I'll tell you, with my commute in and out of Frankenmuth every day, yeah, I'm feeling the darkness right now (laughs) because I'm basically coming in in the dark and going home in the dark. And I just live in the dark and I spend most of my time in a basement. So... (laughs) I'm ready for the solstice. Let me tell you. <laughs> so we're gonna have to throw a solstice party then,
2: December twenty-first. Let's do it in the in the association basement. <laughs> <laughs> so if we want to throw a, a traditional solstice party, we would we probably need a cow to to slaughter or something because that's what they did. Um, and so like it was also a time of kind of abundance and a lot of food, and it was just a joyful time basically. Um, Come the 4th century, Pope Julius I, he decided it was time to start to celebrate Jesus' birthday. So, he just chose December 25th. I don't know why he didn't kind of choose the actual solstice day or what the thinking was there, but it was timed up around the solstice. So, maybe these parties were more like Mardi Gras in a <laughs> sense that like it was extended party, right? I don't know. Um, so So, that's why... Um, it's celebrated on December 25th. Pope Julius really set that date, and ever since then, um, it's it's been a celebration. Um, does, can anyone fill us in? Do you know um, more about like how Christmas kind of came to the United States? I did a little research into this, but
1: I honestly don't know. I always think about it like through the different types of Christmas traditions we have. Like okay. it comes from it comes from like the different immigrant groups. Cause that's one thing when I was doing research for this um, this episode is that I found out like Frankemouth obviously is a German town. So I was looking more into the German Christmas traditions, but I started to realize like Christmas is different everywhere. I remember like during school we'd learn about the different names for Santa Claus and stuff like that. But I didn't realize like how different Christmas can be. Interesting. So um
2: Yeah, the Christmas really kind of came, I think, to the United States, um, not at first. It didn't come to the United States until like the 1800s, which is kind (laughs) of recent, if you think about it, um, because Puritans were one of the first groups to kind of come over to the United States, right? And they were, um, kind of against these sort of pagan symbols, quote-unquote pagan symbols, like the Christmas tree, for example, which actually was a long-standing tradition in Europe, um, but the Puritans decided, um... That, like, all sort of religious imagery should be about Jesus and be specifically religious. So something like a tree didn't make a lot of sense to them. So they kind of quashed things. Actually, for a good 20 years or so in Boston, any Christmas celebration was actually illegal. Like, you could not celebrate Christmas or you'd get in Shoot. trouble. Um <laughs> So this all kind of starts to change in the 1800s, especially when Germans start to come to the United States. Um, And I think that kind of explains a lot why Frankenmuth can be known as a Christmas town, like you were saying, Garrett. Um, So, I mean, we have a lot of these traditions that we can get into more today. I'll just read a random list of them off. So, like, (laughs) Advent wreaths, Advent calendars... um, Krampus, or maybe more locally known as the Peltonickel, um, Christmas markets, stolen bread, Christmas trees. These are all kind of traditions that come from Germany. So I think we can just maybe use that as a jumping off point to to talk about some more of these things, unless you all have something else to add.
0: No, other than the fact that um, I think, you know, Garrett hit a, a really good point home. It's, it's that immigrant story of bringing traditions from the old country to this new area. And I think that's why... Uh, specifically, you know the the theme of Christmas and Christmas time, which is uh, a big thing, um, definitely in in Germany and for German immigrants to maintain their culture, which we've kind of talked about a lot in terms of Frankenmuth being a uh, very interesting colony that is kind of adopting themselves to this new American world and Americanizing while still trying to maintain this kind of German identity the whole time. And I know for me personally, the first time I ever heard of Frankenmuth was because of the Kris Kringle Market. Um, like that's the first thing I ever heard of. That's, you know, my parents brought me, uh, you know, when when I was living in Canada, we came over to Frankenmuth one time specifically just for the Christmas market. I didn't know that. That's cool. Yeah, that was like the first time I had ever come to Frankenmuth. That was the first time I had ever heard of Frankenmuth. Mm -hmm. And really before, and my whole conception of Frankenmuth before I got the job here was just like, oh yeah, that like Christmas town that like is just huge about Christmas. And everyone goes there to do their Christmas shopping every year. Like that was the main thing I knew about Frankenmuth. So I think that's just an interesting point that Garrett hit on, uh, is kind of just maintaining that immigrant story.
1: I just think I have like two quick things before we jump jump into like the traditions. So first one, since we're kind of talking about the different traditions and the way they've come into American culture, in my public history class, we've been talking about how a lot of these living history museums and these like historical interpretation sites will try to incorporate the history of Christmas into their programming, hmm. and we talked about one at Colonial Williamsburg set in like the the 18th century, and it was about um, George Wythe um in his house at colonial williamsburg and how he treated his um like his family members around christmas and it was set in the 18th century and i remember one of the distinct like things that they mentioned is they included a christmas tree because the 21st century so they wanted to make it like relatable to our time but they like took the time to mention that christmas trees didn't come until the 19th century which like kind of echoes what nathan um was saying Mm -hmm. about Mm -hmm. the german immigration push that kind of probably brought Christmas trees over. But like one, since we're kind of talking a little bit about the immigration stories, I was just gonna ask, like, since we're from very different backgrounds, are there any specific like Christmas traditions that your family has brought? I'll just start with mine. Like my, my um, my father's, like my grandmother on my father's side is from um is from Czechoslovakia. Her her dad was from Czechoslovakia. She's a first-generation American, so she'll bring um, I don't remember the check name for it, but it, we call it like a nut roll. And it's just this like really compact little like roll with like brown sugar and a nut mix. And she like spends hours just spreading it over like beds and then just like spreading the dough over the bed like it's a huge thing of dough and then just rolling this like mix in there and I remember like as a kid I would get like a full like roll for Christmas and I'd be like this is the greatest present ever and i try <laughs> to like make it last forever but like my mom's side of the family would like try to get her to bring bring them to her family and it's just like it's something that always reminds me of Christmas I just saw them for like our in between Thanksgiving and Christmas, because now we can't all be together at Christmas, and she had it out there, and, and I was just like, mm, Christmas time.
2: <laughs> it's the smells and scents of Christmas.
0: Yeah, you know, it, for me, it's the kind of the same thing. It's always the food that because my mom just you know cooks and bakes and does the whole the whole nine for the Christmas time. So she makes this uh, this dish called uh, sticky buns. And basically they're just cinnamon rolls, but instead of like an icing on it, they it's like this like caramelized like brown sugar kind of a th- like layer that goes over the top of it. Like you actually, you bake it upside down and then when you present it, you like flip it over. So like the entire bottom is coated in like brown sugar and sugar and cinnamon and everything like that. And then you place the um, basically cinnamon rolls um, on top of that bake it. And then when it comes out, you flip it over onto a, um, like a big tray and then you just pull them off. Um, but like Christmas morning, that's, that's the, the breakfast every Christmas morning is the sticky buns and they, you know, they make their appearance about halfway through opening <laughs> gifts and stuff like that. And it, you know, you have them with a big glass of milk. <laughs> it's just, yeah, no, it's the same thing. It's just like, it's my favorite thing in the world. It's so over the top and decadent. Like <laughs> you shouldn't have it more than once a year. But yeah, for me, it's a, it's always the food. Um, and then just sort of the experience of like getting together with family, you know, uh, Christmas morning is always just like a big deal, um, with my family. Definitely.
2: <laughs> yeah. Kind of the same Malcolm with us. It's growing up. We always, Went to Mass. Uh, I grew up Catholic. So we went to Mass on like Christmas Eve every year, usually with extended family. So there'd be like 20 or 30 of us getting to church like an hour ahead of time just so we could <laughs> all sit together. Um, and then it would be party that night. Like we would go and hang out. Like even when I was in like third grade, like we would go hang out until like 1 a.m. the next day. Go So it would technically be Christmas already on my ride home, which kind of. <laughs> spoiled things, like it didn't give the same magical sense when I woke up on Christmas morning. Um,
1: so did you learn that Santa wasn't real early?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think I kind of knew that early. Like, I I never really can remember a time when I thought Santa was real.
1: Distinct moment getting made fun of in fifth grade for still thinking Santa was real.
0: <laughs> We're going to have to put a parental advisory on this yeah. episode now, just in case any of our younger viewers are tuning in. <laughs>
1: I'm so sorry. I just remember like one kid, like I was talking about how I was waiting for Santa to come right before Christmas break and he's like, dude, he's not real. And I was like, what do you mean? Oh, you had the kid that just dropped the knowledge on you? And then I had to go home and my mom was like, well, I'm sorry. And from that moment on, I started to find where they were hiding the gifts. I ruined Christmas for myself for like five
2: years. Yes, <laughs> I definitely found the hiding spot as well. My mom's closet, master closet, second shelf, it's galore. Found that young, know, very young age, I'd be in the shaking them.
0: What is that? <laughs> See, that's funny because I grew up with my mom really disliking Santa and the whole concept of Santa. Because my mom was like, "No, I'm buying all these gifts. Like, I'm not giving some fat guy in the North Pole the credit." Um, but uh, my dad grew up with with Santa, so they agreed. Apparently, this is what I'm told. They agreed at a young age that. Um, we were allowed to get one gift from Santa, but the rest had to be appropriately credited. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So me and my sisters always got like a movie we wanted to see or like a board game that we could all play together. So it was always like a a communal kind of present for the three of us. And it was like one gift from Santa. Like, Oh, this is the gift from Santa. (laughs) I'm
1: I'm sorry to stay off track, but just one, one thing before we jump in (laughs) as a Canadian, can you explain to me the difference between Christmas and boxing day?
0: Oh yeah. Um, so Boxing Day is kind of Canada's Black Friday. Um, traditionally, Boxing Day obviously comes from the United Kingdom. So Boxing Day is literally the day you box everything up. So it's the day after Christmas. Um, Christmas is more or less celebrated in Canada, celebrated the exact same way as in the states. But Boxing Day is the the day after Christmas when the intention is that you just box everything up. Like you get rid of all of the the trash. You just put everything back in the box. That's kind of the tradition. But then it's also like the big sales day in Canada. Canada is starting to adopt like cyber Monday and black Friday. Like you see some stores doing it and there's a lot of people rolling their eyes, but then like, Oh, I can't beat that deal. So I'm probably going to, you know, go. Um, <laughs> but traditionally in Canada, yeah, like boxing Day is the big sales day. In fact, I had a few friends when we were kids, they didn't really get anything for Christmas. Uh, they just got gift cards. Because they lived like a couple blocks away from the mall. So their parents and their grandparents would just give them gift cards to all their favorite stores, and then they would take those on Boxing Day. The day after Christmas, and go to those stores and get the stuff they wanted. Um, it was a pretty good deal, actually. Give <laughs> them a lot of autonomy.
1: Honestly, um, honestly, I think the US should adopt that. I think that should be our new Black Friday.
0: <laughs> well, no, because they'll just add it on. It won't be the new. But oh. it, this is America. If there's something to sell, they're just going to add it on. They're not going to take <laughs> out one sales day to add another one. <laughs> like, like,
1: <laughs> As someone who works in retail, I can I can confirm. <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> well, all this discussion is getting me a little hungry. So, maybe we should talk about some of the great uh, foods that uh, are kind of in the Christmas tradition. I know Garrett and I, just before we started the episode, already kind of got into it because we're really excited talking about it. I just kind of want to dive in, if that's cool with you. I
2: need you to educate me on stolen bread. Okay. That's what we're here for.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, I don't know if everyone's familiar, but uh, stolen bread or stolen bread is a fruit bread which is made with nuts, spices, and candied fruit and powdered sugar and is enjoyed throughout the holiday season traditionally. Uh, so it's kind of like a, a Christmas bread. Uh, it's not everyone's cup of tea, but it, nowadays it's very uh, sweet and decadent and kind of going along with um, kind of the nut bread that Garrett enjoyed, the sticky buns that I enjoy. But uh, it's got a fascinating history, a storied history, uh, to say the least. Um, a originally complicated. It was, it, <laughs> yeah, a little complicated. Originally it was not nearly as decadent um, and a lot of that actually had to do with um, the influence of the Catholic Church and uh, the different rules about different kinds of ingredients you could make, and also adhering to um, rules and standards for Advent. So um, I think I'll I'll kind of start and set the scene a little bit, and then maybe uh, Garrett, you can take it from there. But uh, like any a good tradition, it starts kind of in myth. Uh, there's no real clear origin of like the day that it started or anything like that. Um, it's commonly um, Agreed upon that uh, stolen bread started in Dresden and was said to have originated in possibly around 1329, uh, or at least into the the late 1300s is when we start seeing actual evidence of it. And uh, it resulted from a contest that was proposed by the Bishop of N- uh, Noroburg, uh, where bakers in the region produced a wonderful uh, bread baked with the finest butter, sugar, raisins, and citron, and other specialty ingredients, of course. And the bishop enjoyed the stolen bread so much that he decided that it should be served every year as part of the um, the winter solstice or the uh, you know the holiday season. But uh, there's, there's a little bit more to it. So that's kind of the origin myth. Um, more concretely, in terms of evidence that we have, we really see uh, evidence of it popping up in the 1400s. So, Gary, do you want to talk about a little bit about the influence of the Catholic Church on
1: on this? Yeah. So, initially, like the the story you're talking about, how the the competition came out and like kind of popularized it, but then obviously not everyone is wealthy enough to make the Stalin bread exactly like that. So, initially, it was also made with like flour, oats, and water, mm-hmm. and then. Due to Advent being a time of fasting, the Saxon bakers were not allowed to use butter. So they had to use oil, which was made out of turnips, apparently. Did not know that. And apparently, it was very hard to make and also more expensive than butter. So in um, 1450, Prince Elector Ernst and his brother Duke Albrecht sent a letter to Pope Nicholas V asking for a like special permission for the Saxon bakers to be allowed to use butter in making their stalling. And um, Pope Nicholas read it and he went, no, thanks. (laughs) Absolutely not. (laughs)
0: Nope. No butter for you.
1: (laughs) So then he was uh, a big fan of turnip
2: oil. Yeah, he absolutely loved it.
1: And the turnip oil (laughs) apparently made this like the cake, or bread. It's now more commonly known as like a cake bread than it was back then, mm-hmm. but apparently it just made it tasteless and flat, um, which I don't know. I don't really like flat bread. Um, <laughs> I really wouldn't enjoy that for my Christmas meal. I mean,
2: if I had to picture what an oil is gonna taste like out of a turnip, I wouldn't imagine something. Good.
0: Welcome to the taste of nothingness. <laughs> exactly, but, it, but it's it's so it's such a fascinating story. You know, you have this you know this kind of the origin of this contest and this um, this bishop who enjoys this this specialty kind of sweet bread and he's like, oh, this is amazing. We should eat this every year. But then. We can't because only the rich can enjoy it because it's so hard to make and so they come up with this sort of like poor man's version of the thing because the mm-hmm. bishop wants everyone to use it. Because you have to remember at this time, the Catholic Church is the dominion. They have complete authority all of all of Europe. They call the shots, like everything. Once the Catholic Church makes a, makes a ruling, everyone has to follow it. It's the word of God. Mm-hmm. Um so, it's, it's fascinating, these like socioeconomic implications of this dynamic that's happening here. Bread. Uh, on bre- Based entirely on bread, but it's involved in a very important religious ceremony, you know, Christmas time. And uh, yeah, just all the implications I just find fascinating. So, like Garrett mentioned, you have kind of the first appeal to Nicholas V, and it gets denied Garrett, how many times did they keep? Did they have how many, how many popes did they
1: have to wait through? So it took four decades and multiple prince electors, for, and then five separate popes before <laughs> Pope Innocent the Eighth in 1490. That date is disputed, but he sent what would be known as the butter letter, and he was the, like the, the butter, butter, butter letter. letter. No, yeah,
2: no.
1: <laughs> and he approved that the prince electors' family and their bakers could use butter, but only them. No one else in the region could use it. Mm-hmm. Um, but then ironically, you know, Germany is the, the like starting off point of the Protestant Reformation. And um, when Saxony, which is ironically where Martin Luther is from, um, when Saxony becomes Protestant, they're like butter for everyone, dude. You, I don't care. I don't care if you yeah, want. You can use butter during Advent. It's fine. Butter revolution. Yeah. <laughs> We're making everything with butter. <laughs> this,
0: this was an amendment to the 95 Theses.
1: <laughs> oh, and also butter during Advent. 90, the 96, <laughs> But um, yeah, so it, it took five popes and four decades for them to finally be like, all right, the rich people can use butter. Yeah. No more. No poor people. The rich people can use butter, and that's
0: important. I think to to point out too is the fact that it was it was not only um, did they give the exemption, but it was only for the rich. And what we have here is kind of an example of old cap and trade. You know, we have that with um, with pollution and uh, different kind of like CO two emissions. But back then, cap and trade was essentially just the church decided what you could and could not do, and if you did it, then you'd get fined. And mm-hmm. you know, because it had religious implications they found out you got turned in like it wasn't something that uh, everyone would just kind of go along with it. You know, it's uh, again, the Catholic church reigns supreme at this time.
1: And then just like kind of pushing forward, getting closer to our era of history about the Stalin bread. One thing that I found when, in my research was that the more modern Stalin bread with like the powdered sugar and what we would consider stolen bread now apparently originated at the council of Trent in 1545. Mm-hmm. And the council of Trent was, Multi, it was like 27 separate meetings um, of the Catholic clergymen, like the cardinals and bishops trying to reform the Catholic church from the inside after they were um, trying to deal with the Protestant issue. So apparently in 1545, they were like, you know what would make this better? You know what would make the Catholic church reform better? Some sweet bread. <laughs> <laughs> so that's apparently where the uh, where our modern shawl and bread came from. Um, but another like, interesting fact that I found was since Dresden was in East Germany, and um, obviously during the Cold War, East and West Germany were separated, the Dresdeners would send stolen bread to West Germans as a thank you for the care packages that they would send to them throughout the years. So, yeah. Bread. The economics I, of bread. Bread. I've, I feel yeah. educated. No. <laughs> <laughs>
0: it, it, it was just like, it was one of those things, like I kind of, it was in my notes and I was just kind of like, okay, what is this? Uh, okay, weird fruit bread, whatever. And and then I kind of went back to it and started like diving in and then I couldn't get out. Like I was just <laughs> like, so, I was in right into
1: now. the politics of when you, no stolen bread. When When just a specific type of bread has a full Wikipedia page that isn't just the one section, you know it's about to be interesting. (laughs) When a Pope sends a
0: letter called the butter letter, like, yeah, you have my attention, sir.
1: (laughs) And Just another interesting fact, because we're trying to relate these German Christmas traditions back to Frankenmuth. So, like we mentioned, this was a bread specifically meant for Advent. It was for the four weeks of Advent, and that was when you could— "Quote unquote," have the bread in Frankenmuth. Anytime you go to the Bavarian Inn and get a large dinner, you get stolen bread anyways, year round.
0: Right? Yeah, like, it's synonymous with German culture now.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and I mean,
2: we're used to just being able to also go purchase anything we want, like in the grocery store too. Mm-hmm. Like when when I looked back at like Christmas gifts of old, even in like the eighteen hundreds, like a common gift was actually oranges on Christmas. Because that was something like you could just couldn't get in mm-hmm. Michigan, right? Mm-hmm. So Christmas time, I just always picture like someone hiking down to Florida with like <laughs> on a horse and wagon <laughs> coming back up with oranges.
0: Like, think True. of the process involved in that. Oh, to, yeah. to bring oranges up. Um whereas like, you know, it's snowing and I'm gonna go get some avocado probably after <laughs> work and not even think twice about it. But right. like I'm in Michigan in the middle of winter and I'm <laughs> eating avocado.
1: <laughs> so one of the places that you would end up finding stolen bread in Germany during this period was at there's the Christmas more, there's markets. There's more to stolen bread? Oh my oh, gosh, oh, tell man. me. man, there's always <laughs> more to stolen bread. I might go buy some after this. <laughs> <laughs> um, but one of Germany's biggest tr- Christmas traditions is their Christmas markets. And in Frankenmuth, I'm pretty sure ours is called the Weinacht market because... Chris Kendall market is what kind of calls it. Either of the two, I found that Weihnacht is christmas in german and then christ kindle is just um christ child market so it's just a a market during the advent season um celebrating christ's birth and it just kind of sells christmas gifts essentially but the things that i found that were sold actually backing up a little bit they also originated in the middle ages i think everything originated in the middle ages when it comes to christmas (laughs) um our modern christmas at least and they run primarily during the four weeks of advent um, due to the middle ages, like history of Germany being the Holy Roman empire, these markets spread outside of what we would consider modern day Germany to the different kind of regions that were touched by the Holy Roman empire. So like Austria, Switzerland, apparently they have one in Paris now because of these like relations. Um, but the common attractions would be a large nativity scene, um, other things like candied plum figures, it has a very long German name that starts with a Z, and I just don't want to offend people by trying to pronounce. Um, and then uh, nutcrackers are one of the things that originated from these Christmas the wooden carved nutcrackers, right? Mm-hmm. And then mold wine, oh, yeah, sounds delicious. You guys ever had mold wine? No, I have not. Hot it's wine. interesting,
0: but yeah, my mom really likes it, and she, um, I always have like. Uh, glass it's not my favorite thing but uh yeah it's it's interesting it's like you know hot wine basically and
1: and apparently also the original like kind of creation of eggnog came from these christmas markets which i don't in the modern day i don't trust eggnog because i don't trust anything made with eggs that in in like a liquid form but like imagine middle age middle ages eggnog like i don't Trust that at all? I don't. I don't understand how people were like hot egg alcohol.
2: Yes, please. Absolutely. That's <laughs> it's interesting. Just to yeah. think about like the origins of things. I always like mm-hmm. to think about like the first time someone did something. The first time someone put fruit and nuts and bread. Like, what were they thinking? And like, just throw this all together. Oh, and like,
1: the other thing is obviously a lot of these like creations come from the nobility so they aren't really as strapped for food but if you think about it from like the simple like lower class peasant level you didn't have enough food to experiment so if like like just hearing about the nobility having this fruit bread you're like so jealous you just Mm -hmm. want to try it and i think that like kind of feeds into how it like spread out and required the elector Mm -hmm. to send a letter to the pope because Mm -hmm. people wanted to have it um so it's just it's kind of interesting but back to the markets, the markets are still one of the largest tourist attractions around the Christmas time yeah. in Germany. A couple of the like most famous ones are the Nuremberg and Dresden um, Christmas markets that get 2 million visitors per year. So if you think about it, four weeks of Advent, that's 500,000 people a week. Yeah. That's like a majority of the city of Detroit just going to Germany <laughs> and just coming in on one market across one week. And I just think that's just like from my personal standpoint of not wanting to be around that many people, that's just, that's just kind of scary to think about how many people are just in this little market here.
0: Is that anxiety pre or post COVID?
1: All of the above, please.
0: (laughs) That's sorry. That's just a funny thing that just like with, with COVID, like I find I even watch like movies now. I'm just like, well, that's not COVID safe. (laughs) Yep,
1: Exactly. And then, one of the even bigger markets getting about 3 million visitors across the Advent season is the Stuttgart market. And then the other like big market that I found, cause most of these cities have one Christmas market. They don't have a bunch of these different ones, but Dortmund apparently has two separate Christmas markets. And one of them is known for having like the world's largest Christmas tree that stands at about 48 meters tall, which in our simple American standards is 150 <laughs> feet tall. And, like, you know, we've got the, the big Christmas tree at Rockefeller Plaza in um, New York, which, like, in 2015 was from the Upper Peninsula. UP Power, baby. Um, but I don't even know how tall that is, but just thinking about an 150-foot-tall Christmas tree... I'm pretty sure we had a 150-foot-tall Christmas tree in our courtyard in my high school, but I'm not going to brag. <laughs> <laughs> I think you just did. Um, but that's interesting, too, how these
0: Christmas markets have really diffused across the entire world um, because they're in Canada, too. Kitchener-Waterloo kitchener, uh, kitchener Waterloo in Ontario has a Chris Kendall market that I've been to a couple times. It's fantastic. It, it kind of like it's all across the downtown, indoor and outdoor. And that's the big uh, distinguishing uh, characteristic, I think, of one of these Christmas markets is it has to be outdoor. And there has to be a little bit of everything, too. It's not just shopping, it's sort of a whole event, like you go, especially in Canada, too, like you go skating. Um, that's a big part of it. You go skating. You get hot beverages. There's sort of, you know, food and um, treats and frenzy and shopping. But it, it's it's as much of a uh, just a cultural experience yeah. as it is just another shopping opportunity,
1: which you can not feel like. But I know that like one of my core Christmas memories from when I used to live in Detroit as a kid was going to the Greenfield Village like Christmas like just kind of their exhibit because Greenfield village closes for the winter, but they open up around Christmas time and it's not exactly the Christmas market, but it's all of that like cultural experience trying to convey like what a Christmas market would look like. And that's where I learned about all these different traditions of what Santa Claus looks like in different countries. And then it's also skating on an outdoor rink. That's just kind of like a core Christmas memory for me. But that's oh, yeah. also just a core memory of living in the Upper Peninsula, just having to skate outside. But <laughs> I think it's, just a, it's a
0: Midwestern thing too, you know, because um, in Stratford, like the Avon River freezes every year and everyone goes out and skates on it at least once a year. Like it's, yeah, I think it's just a traditional Midwestern thing. Skating is just part of the culture.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: mm-hmm. And Frank Muth actually just got a skating rink this year too. Sex. So, uh, yeah. Um,
1: How tall do you think the Christmas tree next to the association is? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, it's
2: big. Forty. Forty feet? You think?
0: Yeah.
2: I would guess. That's it's a guess. Just like
1: <laughs> honestly, this is completely unrelated to history or Christmas. The concept of like height of things. Doesn't make sense, <laughs> like, like, like 40 feet. 40, like, you tell me that Christmas tree, which is like taller than the building, is 40 feet, and I'm like, no, it's not. That's like a thousand. I don't get it. I don't get it. <laughs> your, your sense this of measurement been, and height is just completely this askew. Has been this Geometry has been, was a whole nother subject for you. It's just this has been science and height with Garrett. <laughs> I, I,
0: I'm just imagining you in like a high school like class just like these numbers make no sense and you just like throw it up in the air and you just walk out and walk straight into a history course like tell me about culture
1: I, I took AP calculus my senior year and on the AP test there was one question we definitely learned enough about it and it's like the short answer portion of the test and I'm looking at this and it's close to the end of like my period and I go I don't know. So I drew a literal potato on my AP exam on the calculus exam because I don't understand math and that is why I'm in history. <laughs> but let me tell
2: you about potatoes. <laughs> right. And um, the history of there. the Irish potato family. Yeah, we we could make an episode about that. Um, <laughs> but in all seriousness, uh, getting back to a little bit of kind of some local traditions of Frankmuth and why Frankmuth is such a Christmas town, I feel like if there's I mean, there's a lot of people to, to credit for all the Christmas festivities and stuff going in town. But if we look back, probably the one family, um, especially, um, that's credited with really bringing Christmas to town and making Frank with Christmassy is the Brunner family, right? Um, and it all kind of started with uh, Wally Brunner. Um, he actually started. Um, a sign painting business. He was kind of a very talented artist when he was in high school and stuff. And in his parents' basement, he just, he started painting some signs. Um, he actually went to, um, Bay City, I think it was. And cause it's kind of how we got to start. Right. Um, he, and he decorated a window front of, of a, like a general store basically. Um, and there were some men who were from Claire, Michigan that happened to be traveling, um, Two Bay City, and they saw him working on it, and they stopped there like, whoa, this is amazing. Like, hmm. can you tell us more about this? And like, he was just so charismatic and kind of passionate that these people from Claire decided, okay, you can come decorate our whole city. And so he did. Um, and he he got a lot of joy out of it, I think. Um, and so he started coming back to Frankenmuth and really developing kind of his business i guess so the sign painting business i was talking about this started in his parents basement um he started doing a lot of christmas sort of decorating around town from my understanding um and then eventually he got so much um like his business grew so much that his parents basement couldn't contain it anymore right um so he had to move into a shop on main street um actually i think uh, it's it's the um I forget which one was the first one because he actually had three buildings um, on Main Street at one point, all at the same time. Um, but the but Brunner's Christmas Wonderland kind of started there, I think, like at the Record Bank, um, Tuscola and Main Street, and so he he pretty much had like a corner of Frankenmuth. Um, these three buildings were on. Right. And people just flocked to Brunner's like so much so that town would just be shut down to the point where he was like, okay, now this is expanding so much. I've got to move again. And Brunner's decided to build, um, at their current location. Um, and now they've expanded to being like six and a half football fields. I think their store is. Um, so yeah, the world's largest Christmas store and it's pretty
1: legit. Um, close like four days a year, four or five or something. Ah, uh, because I know their I sign it. says something about it. Um, yeah. Like, are they actually closed on Christmas Day?
2: I I, I think
1: they're closed Christmas Day. I know it's probably Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving, and Easter. Because one thing to note is like when you say Brunners Christmas Wonderland, like Christ is in capital, is it, like yeah. entirely capital mm-hmm. letters. So mm-hmm. he's going to be closed for these like religious holidays as well. And so I I wanted to to throw out Brunner and
2: and um. Wally Brunner, especially because I think he's kind of really to credit for uh, Frank and Muth being a Christmas town. But like, like we're saying, like a lot of people are to credit nowadays with making Frank and Muth Christmassy, right? Um, and like, what are the main sort of reasons that you two think like? that Frankenmuth became a Christmas town. I mean, we talked about the traditions, right? We talked about some local people that brought these things. I would add in like faith in general is Mm -hmm. kind of a reason um, because I mean, Christmas season, like everyone goes around saying Jesus is the reason for the season, right? Um, And I think when we look at St. Lawrence and like the rich sort of faith history with the Lutheran church here in Frankenmuth, I think that's also a reason that the community kind of comes together and celebrates and is able to,
1: to make the town christmas town basically i think just another like like more conceptual reason is although americans might not recognize it most of our christmas traditions come from like central europe so germany and things like that so like when you hear about like the michigan's little bavaria you're and then you hear again that they have the christmas wonderland you come to visit the christmas wonderland then you're just driving through town and you realize like how christmassy this makes you feel and you don't understand that it's because of like the bavarian style buildings and you're like in american culture i think we just associate like bavarian and alpine architecture with christmas for some reason that's just like my personal belief (laughs) but just again it's Has a lot to do with not only the faith in like Christmas Wonderland, but just also the region of Michigan we're in. Once you, once it hits the Christmas season, season, most of the time we have like snow on the ground. It just feels like Christmas. So I don't don't know how to explain (laughs) that. (laughs) So I think we could go
2: on and on about Christmas in town, but I think we better wrap it up here and maybe we can do some more later. Um, but if you would like to come to Frankenmuth and really experience Christmas, this is the town to do it in. I mean, now we, like we were mentioning, um, there's a giant Christmas tree in town. There's the Chris Kindle Market. There's the ice rink. There's a lot of things to do here. Um, so come on out to Frankenmuth, and thanks for listening to to today's podcast as well, if I can spit that out. Um, everyone, Merry Christmas.
0: I'll be the same.